to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about some of the abuses uh, against the parents of slain children in Uvalde, Texas. And it's Friday, which means we're having our weekly segment, the Red Spin Report, where we discuss sports, politics, and struggle. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Well, yes, I watched the televised House Select Committee hearing of the January 6th investigation last night, and I got to say, it was compelling. Now, I can admit when I'm wrong because I was very, very skeptical about the utility of what they would air and why the need to do it. I'm still not convinced that the televised hearings will produce any substantive legal action against any of the people involved in planning or carrying out the January 6th attack. I I will never not be mistrustful of this justice system to mete out real justice to real criminals, especially when they're rich, powerful and white. But I can admit that what was presented last night was indeed compelling, if not shocking, in a way. Obviously, the video of the violence committed on that day was a much-hyped aspect of the hearings, and they did reveal footage that had not been released before. In it, Trump's supporters are seen in literal hand-to-hand combat, out-and-out brawling with Capitol Police. Some footage seems to be from a police body cam angle. And from that vantage point, you can clearly see how the police were doing everything they could to keep the surging, cursing, violent mob of Trump supporters from breaching the Capitol complex grounds and how time after time, members of that mob willingly, repeatedly fought with those cops. One video shows several members of the mob trying to take the cops' baton away as they were fighting to overpower them, literally punching and pummeling them with fists and flagpoles and sticks and whatever they could get their hands on. And you can see the cop trying to beat those people back, then engaged in a tug of war over his own weapon with those people. Another video shows how members of the mob broke through the barricades at the very beginning of the riot, how they rushed and fought cops over and eventually either lifted up or pushed over those barricades. They either smashed those barricades down over the cops' heads who were trying to hold them, or they just pushed through and trampled over other cops. You saw a video of countless men and women in the mob screaming, cursing, aggressively gesturing and throwing things at cops trying to keep the mob from breaking into the Capitol building. All of the people in that mob were angry. All of them were pushing to get into the Capitol. Many of them began to call for hanging Mike Pence and Nancy Pelosi. None of those people were involved in a peaceful protest. None of them were chanting, no justice, no peace. None of them were in the posture of asking the police not to shoot them because they had their hands up. Those people were out for blood, destruction, and dare I say, occupation, definitely insurrection. And not one cop responded to any of them the way they've responded to us when we protested all over this country in opposition to the type of racist police terrorism that ended the lives of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Sandra Bland and Eric Garner and so many more. 
every one of the people in the January 6th insurrection committed the kinds of offenses that the police always claim our people commit that warrants their abuse or death disrespecting cops, aggressive or violent behavior toward cops, resisting the cops, trespassing, property damage. Literal riots and death threats were hurled against the cops and elected officials by the insurrectionists, but they weren't shot down. They weren't messed with militarized police. They weren't shot with rubber bullets sprayed with water cannons. They weren't kettled into a small space, then pepper sprayed. Hell, they weren't even arrested let alone shot to death in spite of all the actual, literal, clear-as-day violence they were carrying out against the police. So I watched that new video evidence, which is harrowing, and of course, I saw all the violence that was carried out, but I also saw that for three hours on January 6th, the police actually did have their lives threatened. They actually did have legitimate reasons to fear for their lives, This time, we see that the cops really were under attack by the violent, mostly white mob incited by Donald Trump to do whatever they could to stop the election results from being certified that day. We've peacefully marched in the streets demanding an end to the police violence committed against us, but we were met with overwhelmingly militarized and violent police to those overwhelmingly peaceful protests in city after city. Our protests have been called riots by media pundits. One of the corporate shills actually did it again last night after the hearing, accused of burning cities to the ground in the summer of 2020. But all all we wanted was for the police to stop killing unarmed black and indigenous and poor people with impunity. Those people at the Capitol on January 6th, they clearly went there with a plan to carry out violence, committed that violence against the cops and the Capitol building, and were prepared to commit more violent acts against individuals in that building if they could get their hands on them, all to overturn an election that their leader lost, and the cops showed a level of restraint against them that they have never shown us. The video evidence of how easy it is for cops to show restraint in the face of actual violence committed against them makes these televised hearings actually pretty worthwhile. Follow Luke Mon Nation on Patreon.com slash Luke Mon Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points. And you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on as they say. We're now happy to be joined by Teddy Kelly and Marinda Chrisman, co-editors of Tear Down the Walls, a weekly section of the Workers' World newspaper dedicated to prison abolition, and co-chairs of the Prisoner Solidarity Committee of Workers' World Party. Teddy, Marinda, thank you both so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. And Of course, uh, this country uh, is still very much reeling from the recent tragic shooting in Uvalde, Texas, that saw the deaths of uh, uh, several children. I mean, something that is just devastating uh, uh, the families and communities of that town. But the pain that is being felt there, the pain that anyone would feel from losing a child in that way is actually compounded in 
certain ways by other uh, forms of uh, exploitation and, and mass incarceration and issues with the, the racist uh, immigration system here in the United States. And I feel like we see that, <clears throat> excuse me, in particular in the case of 10-year-old uh, Eliana Cruz Torres, who was one of the victims, unfortunately, of uh, the Uvalde shooting. And her father actually was not able to attend her funeral. And Marinda, I want to start with you. And I was hoping you could sort of break down what happened here with uh, Eliana Cruz Torres and her father and how uh, uh, sort of this this system, if you will, has in a way, really just sort of poured salt uh, in the wound wrought by this shooting. Yeah, absolutely. So um, her, her father, Eli Torres, he is uh, behind bars in a penitentiary in uh, rural Kentucky, and he was not granted uh, release to go visit the funeral of his slain daughter in this, this mass shooting that could have been prevented. Um, he is an example of so many people who also are separated from their loved ones because of prisons, jails, and detention centers. Um, just like Mr. Torres, um, people like the Move Nine or uh, political prisoners, like Mumia Abu-Jamal, they are separated from their families when the passing of a loved one happens. But the nature of these capitalist cages in general does this to so many thousands upon thousands of people, whether they're in prisons, jails, or detention centers. And particularly here in Texas, um, I definitely want to talk a lot about the detention centers because in communities like Uvalde and along the border, where here in the United States, the border is considered anywhere within 100 miles of the lines drawn by imperialists. Um, border Patrol and other law enforcement agencies, particularly in Texas, uh, round up migrants on trespassing charges. I know Union Pacific Railroad has been collaborating with law enforcement and facilitated the arrests of a couple thousand migrants in places like King County, Texas. Um, but they they will round up migrants under Governor Abbott's Operation Lone Star, and they put them in what have been uh, th these Texas prisons that have been really done to facilitate the, the, the caging of migrants. Um, skirting all sorts of laws, federal and international laws, um, just, just to hold people. And separating families is very much a, policy, a colonial policy that's been present on this continent since day one. Um, the separation of families through chateau enslavement or even you know, uh, residential schools of, of, of Native peoples here, um, Family separation very much is part and parcel of the United States settler colonial project. And it is infuriating what has happened to Mr. Torres and his family not being able to grieve over the loss of the loss of their daughter. Um, but that's that is mass incarceration and um, 
modern day enslavement here in the United States, which which is why um, we we have to abolish prisons, jails, and detention centers by by their very nature. They uh, they are the enemy of working class peoples. Yeah, and I'm glad you raised these different issues uh, regarding, you know, uh, the boarding, Indian boarding schools uh, and, and the prison industrial complex, because the idea of family separation and how that is used as a weapon against people is not just one that we face here uh, in this country and certainly not just related to or, or confined to North America, but this is a global issue. I mean, because just last summer, uh, Khalida Jarrar, Palestinian political prisoner and a leader in the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, was denied the opportunity to attend her daughter's funeral, Suha Jarrar. Um, and when her daughter suddenly died at the age of 31 and her funeral was uh, uh, conducted in her hometown of Ramallah. And uh, Khalida said, the occupation robbed me, the occupation of Israel, uh, uh, the Israel's occupation of Palestine, robbed me of saying goodbye to my little bird, Suha, forcing me to say farewell with a flower from our lands instead of a kiss. When Suda came, I'm sorry, when Suha came into the world, her father was incarcerated and she is leaving it now with her mother behind bars. So understanding that the uh, prison industrial complex, the system of uh, occupation, settler colonialism uses family separation as a weapon. How many family separations have there been over the centuries and how are we still seeing that impact today? Yeah, one of, one of the first things I, I thought of when I heard about Eli Torres being denied uh, the opportunity to to say goodbye to his daughter, I thought of, of Khalida Jarrar. And like you mentioned, uh, when when her daughter Suha, who was an amazing, amazing activist um, and environmental scientist who studied the, the ecological and environmental effects of colonialism, um, when she... When she passed away, um, Khalida was still in prison, and her father Hassan, who's another leader of the Palestinian resistance movement, was was incarcerated when she was born. Um, and we wanted to talk about Eli Torres because, like you said, Jackie, this is a daily occurrence. Every day that families are separated because of the prison industrial complex is is an ongoing atrocity and and it is important that we talk specifically about the attacks historically against african people and and the ongoing attempts to destroy organizing efforts of black liberation organizers and one really can't talk about the struggle of indigenous peoples uh, and nations uh, against settler colonialism without talking about prisons. Um, you, you mentioned, you alluded to the quote-unquote Indian removal policies, where they, the United States really pioneered the establishment of mass internment camps, what they called at the time in the 19th century emigration depots. Um, we, uh, at the Prisoner Solidarity Committee, we maintain that U.S. prisons have been and continue to be concentration camps 
for the poor and the oppressed. And one function of this imprisonment is to prevent colonized people and oppressed people from fighting, from fighting for their own national self-determination. Um, and I think that the history of uh, the, the European and capitalist occupation of Texas is, is really brought to the fore. But like Marinda mentioned, Mumia Abu Jamal, the Move Nine, this, these are political prisoners who are right in my backyard in, in Philadelphia. This is true of Palestinian organizers. Um, this is true of, of Leonard Peltier and Matulu Shakur, uh, political prisoners who are still behind bars for fighting for their uh, right to organize and to determine their own fates. Um, but it, it's, it's something that I think even in the face of a sort of unspeakable atrocity, the fact that they still would not, in this extraordinary circumstance, let a father go to the funeral of his 10-year-old daughter. It speaks to the cruelty and the necessity for this system to maintain a carceral apparatus that we're talking about here. Yeah. And, you know, uh, in listening to uh, Teddy's comments there, Marinda, I mean, it really just sort of drives home the centrality of capitalist exploitation when when we discuss this whole issue. And also just just the the unnecessary cruelty in the sense that, you know, we saw, you know, Joe Biden, the U.S. president, uh, like, you know, leaders always do in these times of um, uh, uh, these incidents and these shootings and things like this with, you know, all the platitudes and the nice words and the things like this and meeting with the families. And it's just hard for me to believe that there is not something that could have been done to release this man so that he can go uh, uh, bury his daughter who died in this tragic way. I mean, the idea that he had to view the funeral virtually in a prison cell is just unconscionable. You know what I mean? But I think it just shows the fundamental inhumanity of this capitalist system and uh, how the, the mass incarceration apparatus is just an outgrowth of that inhumanity. Yeah. And, and the, 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 the inhumanity that happens daily, um, people are forced to view all sorts of things from a screen, uh, funerals of loved ones, or perhaps chatting with people who they're not allowed to see due to different COVID protocols and in visitation. Um, and uh, I, I want to bring in the struggle of migrants right now here in Texas. Um, I mentioned earlier that uh, there are prisons here, Texas prisons, um, that have been at least two, the Briscoe unit and the Segovia unit that have been repurposed to hold migrants. They've emptied those TDCJ units aside from about 200 Texas prisoners to, to run the labor for them. But like most Texas prisons, um, I believe like 75 out of a hundred and so a hundred or so prisons here in Texas don't have air condition. Um, in, in the Texas heat where it regularly gets up to past 100 degrees, um, they did put AC in in those prisons after the uh, to, to make them uh, ice boxes uh, uh, to hold these migrants. But the the quarters where the the prisoners are living um, still don't have air conditioning, even though they're being held in in the same places. The not having air conditioning 
in in a box with with very little airflow that is a daily inhumanity that's a the fact of life for people in texas prisons here and uh even even migrants that are being held um the daily inhumanities of medical neglect are also very pernicious and uh we're not going to see those inhumanities stop with reform. Prison reform begets us more violence. If you if you reform something that started with violence, it's going to continue to get violence in, in, in different. Yeah, Teddy, curious your thoughts on the same point. I think this is so important what Miranda what Miranda brings in, and you know, I I, I have a friend who a few years ago was was locked up. He was in a jail in Philadelphia. He couldn't afford to post bail. He was held for a year and a half without trial. And at the end of that year and a half, awaiting trial, he was found not guilty. But in the meantime, he missed the birth of his daughter, his first child. At the same rate, there are over 20,000 elderly and dying prisoners in Pennsylvania alone, or in in the United States, who have sent petitions for compassionate release because they are dying in prison cells. And between January in 2020 and June 2021, 20,000 petitions were filed. Only 3,000, 3,600 were granted. We have a extremely, extremely serious crisis of aging prisoners. There are over 300,000 people in the U.S. over the age of 50 who are in a prison cell right now as we speak. And compassionate release uh, is is a term that we use, and it's a very broad definition. Here in Pennsylvania, they only really let people out on the grounds of quote-unquote compassionate release if they are about to die. Um, we, we recently were able to win the release of a, a man named Bradford Gamble, who had spent decades, decades behind bars until he found out that he had terminal cancer uh, and, and was dying. He was 20 years old when he was condemned to spend his life in prison, and now he's 66. And the only reason he was able to be released is because he is dying. This is an unspeakable cruelty that this system inflicts from the cradle, literally to the grave. Um, and I, I completely agree with, with what Miranda said. To mitigate a, a system that cruel is not enough. It must be abolished. It must be abolished. And, you know, Miranda, we are uh, up against uh, uh, an attitude toward this system in this country that makes abolition really difficult because in Texas in particular, you know, vigilantes and state officials that acted in concert uh, using force uh, to enforce the color bar in labor and terrorize Mexicans and Mexican-Americans through beatings, torture and shootings and uh, mass decapitations. Uh, you know, during massacres, people still valorize the Texas Rangers, the U.S. Border Patrol, uh, and they are 
generally pretty supportive of even detention centers where parents and children, families are separated. So how do you struggle with people to raise their awareness and educate them on the brutality of this system, that it's it's not a good thing, and that is, in fact, in service uh, of white supremacy? Yeah, so one of the ways that we engage folks is um, using the teachings of our, our Native comrades who have very well-documented uh, recallings of, of how these white supremacist bodies have been acting over the centuries. Um, an educated proletariat is dynamite. Political education is absolutely key. When you have people who have family members who were lynched by the Texas Rangers, or even in the case of someone like Melissa Lucio, who's on Texas death row, one of six women on Texas death row, she was interrogated by the Texas Rangers for seven hours as a survivor of gendered and domestic violence. She was coerced into admitting that she killed her daughter, which she did not, and she wasn't even present. Um, she's still on death row after well over a decade. Um, raising stories like hers are helpful to people seeing the inhumanity of this system. She was um, in, a, in a border town or in, in South Texas, Harlingen, and she recently received a date of execution from the state. Here, Texas is the, the killing capital of the country. We've executed 574 people since 1982 in the modern era. That's more than the next six states combined. Whenever we are able to lift up the struggle against the death penalty, whether inflicted through legal lynchings via lethal injection, or even the inhumanity of the daily incarceration through prisons, jails, and detention centers. We're always lifting up the struggles of real people who are being oppressed. And political education is an extremely important to that. When you raise the struggles of oppressed people, whether it's here in Texas or in Palestine, and you talk about how Courts on stolen land are going to bring us justice. And you kind of give a, a, a bit of history from here and abroad. It's really helpful. Like tying back into the Palestinian struggle, um, pal uh, settler courts, Israeli settler courts over there, have a 99% conviction rate against Palestinians. There is no justice in that. And we see that even here in the United States when we look at the Supreme Court, uh, current Supreme Court, denying rights on a daily basis. We're not going to get justice from these courts or these prisons or this, this capitalist state. Um, and one of the ways that we take the, po the politically educated folks that we struggle with is, is we, we organize and we use organizations to fight back. Um, one of the groups of organizations that have come together to fight Operation Lone Star here in Texas against migrants, um, they have a website in LoneStar.com that people can check out and keep up with that struggle. It's it's. It's a whole lot of people building organizational power and providing education to fight this beast.
Absolutely. Well, we thank you both so much for joining us today. We're going to leave it there, but move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about regional issues facing the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And we're very happy to be joined for this conversation today by Maurice Carney, co-founder and executive director of Friends of the Congo. Maurice, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, it's my pleasure. Good to be back with you all again. Absolutely. And uh, here lately, Maurice, it seems that the DRC, along with uh, uh, really many issues facing the country and its people, it also feels like it's sort of always staring down uh, uh, threats from uh, neighboring uh, uh, countries like Uganda and Rwanda that basically function as U.S. client states in that part of uh, the African continent. And I was hoping you could sort of describe uh, uh, the character of these threats and what it could mean for the Congo. Yes, thank you. Uh, well, the, the, the threats uh, have been actually more than threats uh, because uh, we're talking about really, Sean, uh, 25 years of a war of aggression uh, against the Congolese people, uh, a war of aggression that could not could not take place without the backing of the United States and, and to some extent, the United Kingdom, the European Union, and, and France in particular, uh, and that is uh, Rwanda's and Uganda's uh, incursion into the Congo. They have invaded the Congo twice, 1996, 1998. Uh, since that time, uh, they've occupied parts of the Congo, and uh, they've support, supported militia groups uh, inside the Congo uh, under the Offices uh, or the causes bellai that they put up. The rationale is that they're addressing their security concerns. Uh, however, we see that both nations uh, have fought each other on Congolese soil. In fact, this week is the 22nd anniversary of the uh, so-called Six Day War, where Rwandan and Ugandan forces fought each other in the city of Kisangani, killing about a thousand people or so and injuring many more and they're fighting over control of natural resources. And that's really what's at the root of it, in that these two nations access resources in the Congo and export those resources uh, to uh, Western companies and and corporations. And they're able to get away with it uh, because whenever any kind of accountability is attempted to be imposed on them, uh, the United States in particular... Uh, and to some extent, uh, the UK, they run interference. Uh, they block, uh, block they, they block uh, efforts at uh, in international institutions. And in some instances, in the case where a British court had tried to uh, hold an, uh, one an official accountable, uh, the wife of Tony Blair jumped in and served as that um, Rwandan official's uh, attorney. And so the, you have a, a classic case 
of uh, agents of neocolonialism uh, running amok, not only in Central Africa uh, and in the Congo, but really throughout the, the continent, especially when you take into consideration uh, the chief agent, uh, Paul Kagame, who's uh, doing the bidding of the United States and friends uh, throughout the Afghan continent, uh, not just in the Congo and the Great Lakes region of Africa. Yeah, I'm glad you raised Paul Kagame's name because we've certainly talked about him on the show before and his role uh, in the Rwandan uh, Civil War and in the ongoing uh, carnage uh, in uh, Congo. But also he and Yoweri Museveni's uh, uh, involvement in invading the Congo in 1996 and in 1998 resulted in the occupation of large swaths of the country because they were backed by and sponsored uh, militia groups backed by the U.S. And, and the U.K. and sponsored militia groups such as M23 to sow mayhem and destruction. Um, but then it, it continued. So how did that uh, those occupations in 96 and 98 continue? Uh, how did they continue to ravage uh, the Congo? And how do we continue to see both Kagame uh, and the Ugandan government continuing to benefit? from uh, the occupation of the Congo? Well, I mean, the short answer, um, Jackie, is because they're doing the bidding of, uh, of the West, of, of France, uh, the United States, and of the UK. Bidding meaning that if there are uh, conflicts or if they, if they need uh, soldiers uh, to go anywhere, uh, for example, Uganda provided soldiers to, uh, to fight in uh, Iraq. Uh, for for the United States, uh, if uh, uh, Rwanda soldiers are needed to address issues in Mozambique, for example, that would clear the way for uh, French uh, oil companies, you know, Paul Kagame, you know, is their is their guy. Um, plus, he, he it's not. I don't really want to personalize it. Uh, they represent a type, right? A uh, a type of of leader that serves the interests of the of the West, and they get benefits for doing that. You know, so you have the Kagamis, you have the Alassane Ouattara, you have, you have uh, the Blaise Compares. So it's really important for us to understand that uh, following the the tremendous violence that was waged against independence leaders, that removed the revolution leaders uh, from. Uh, the African continent uh, that the Europeans uh, uh, carried out against Africa, a certain type of uh, leader was uh, uh, imposed on African peoples. And some of those leaders excel at uh, being agents. And Paul Kagame is a classic case of an African leader uh, that is... uh, uh, it's excelling at being an agent of neocolonialism. And not uh, solely because of the violence that he's carried out against Africans, but the propaganda machine that is unleashed globally even have Africans believing that he's a pan-Africanist, he's a model to follow, uh, or he's uh, what Bill Clinton, Madeleine Albright, and Susan Rice called a Renaissance leader a new African leader. So uh, this is what was present, uh, presented, uh, has been presented to the world. And unfortunately, many uh, 
of us, uh, Africans at home and abroad, uh, have fallen for it and believe that uh, Kagame is a model, uh, when in fact he's a type uh, of an agent that's uh, serving the bidding of, uh, of the West. And we see the destruction that is that's uh, being waged now, uh, recently with the advances of the M23, the Rwanda-backed M23 in eastern Congo. Definitely. And on that note, I'm also curious, um, Maurice, how does this... How does this leadership, Paul Kagame, uh, uh, U70, uh, how does their leadership reflect on the conditions inside their country? You know what I mean in terms of uh, being these uh, uh, sort of Western satellites? Like, what does that look like for their people? Well, it looks like uh, repression, subjugation. Uh, if we, um, I think you've you all followed uh, uh, Museveni, who's been in power for over three decades, uh, treat uh, his population and opposition figures who challenge him. I mean, they use uh, the military, the security, that uh, the equipment and everything that they get from the United States to repress their people. Kagame, in the last election, we see one with over 99% of the vote. Uh, however, the one woman who challenged them, he jailed her. Uh, and uh, it was the same in the previous election. So the, uh, the model is that... Uh, those who are backed by the West and sponsored by the West uh, and get the military equipment, get the training, get the intelligence, uh, benefit from the political and diplomatic cover on the international scene, uh, they use those tools to repress their population. And, and this is so vital for, for us to understand, not only as, uh, as Africans, because we see where the United States uh, chastise and put sanctions on nations in Latin America, for example, because of their quote-unquote lack of democratic practices, which is, really means that that's Washington speak for, you know, these nations are acting in their own interest and defending their sovereignty and not towing the line of Washington. Uh, but uh, at the same time, we look on the African continent and the Kagamis and the Museveni's, and their treatment of their population pale in comparison to anything that we see in Venezuela or in Cuba or in Nicaragua. So it's so really key for uh, those of us who are uh, quote unquote on the left or progressive forces uh, to make those connections, uh, uh, raise and heighten the, the blatant uh, contradictions and hypocrisy that we see coming from uh, the United States government and its uh, European counterparts. Yeah, and Maurice, we got about three minutes left, and in that time, I was hoping you could say something uh, based on those comments you just made about the importance of waging this as a, a pan-African struggle. You know, uh, certainly it's an internationalist um, issue, but I mean, how do you see a, a, a pan-Africanist kind of a struggle playing a role in this kind of issue? Absolutely. The Pan-African struggle uh, has played a role on Shauna on several levels. I'll just give you one quick example. When Rwanda and Uganda uh, invaded in the Congo in 1998, uh, the reason why they were um, backed up was because of a Pan-African response. Uh, the Southern African Development Community, led by Zimbabwe, uh, Angola, Namibia, uh, sent military forces in the Congo to confront uh, these agents of the, of the West. Uh, so uh, on that level, uh, and certainly, uh, we see uh, young police uh, collaborating uh, with uh, resistance forces inside those countries, inside of Rwanda, inside of Uganda, and uh, their diaspora uh, in Europe and uh, throughout the United States and Canada, 
organizing, doing uh, events, educating people about uh, the role of their respective governments in suppressing their population, in uh, benefiting from uh, U.S. and U.K. largesse. And so you have a, a grassroots people's engagement that's been uh, well underway for a number of years as well. Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Maurice, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Friday, which means it's time for another edition of our weekly segment, The Red Spin Report, where we discuss sports, politics, and struggle with Miguel Garcia of the Anti-Conquista Collective, who's also the host and creator of the Sports as a Weapons podcast. Miguel, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Sean and Jackie. Glad to be back. Absolutely. And Miguel, uh, Simone Biles, uh, an Olympic gold medalist, uh, along with 90 other uh, claimants, uh, it will be filing a $1 billion uh, lawsuit in damages from the FBI for failing to stop uh, Larry Nassar when they first received uh, allegations of sexual abuse um, against him. And I mean, it's documented that, you know, back in 2015, FBI agents knew about Nassar being a accused of uh, uh, engaging in sexual assault with uh, the young gymnast, but didn't do anything. And uh, among the 90 claimants, uh, 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 along with Biles, it includes uh, Michaela Maroney, Ali Raisman, who are both also uh, Olympic gold medalists. And according to former University of Michigan gymnast Samantha Roy, she said, quote, if the FBI had simply done its job, Nasser would have been stopped before he ever had the chance to abuse hundreds of girls including me. I mean, you know, I mean, you talk about criminal negligence. I'm not even sure what you could even uh, call uh, uh, how derelict uh, the FBI was in terms of handling this situation. But uh, just wondering your top line thoughts about this, Miguel. Yeah. um, So when this came out, I wasn't, I guess, surprised that they were filing a lawsuit because, like you said, we've kind of known for a while that the the FBI failed to pretty much do anything for over a year once they heard of these allegations uh, of Larry Nasser, you know, sexually assaulting hundreds of gymnasts, uh, women gymnasts, that he was the uh, team doctor for, for the Team USA. And I, I know in the AP, the one of the stories I read from the AP, this isn't, I'm not surprised by it, by this uh, fact that I found out, but I guess, you know, this isn't the first time we know of the FBI failing to stop something and also being uh, sued. Um, One of the examples, one of the articles I read, like comparing this, it's something different, but it was just another example of the FBI not doing anything. They were talking about when uh, the mass shooting in in Florida a few years ago, I think the Parkman High School, the FBI knew about that too, and that was like five weeks before it happened. So those, these are just this is just another example of 
somehow incompetent or even maybe they just don't care of the FBI uh, knowing about certain things and not not acting on it. And then something else that was interesting about this is, you know, they're getting sued by 90 claimants, like you said, including Simone Biles and some of her Olympic gold medal teammates. And then just other, it's just, but then it also includes just other U.S. gymnast, uh, college athletes that were in gymnastics, like you said, the athlete from um, other schools like Michigan State or University of Michigan. But I also found it interesting the FBI is not even the only one that got sued regarding this whole sexual assault uh, case of Larry Nasser. Um, they also have been, they also, there's been a settlement, I guess, with the uh, University of Michigan or Michigan State, I might say, that's where he was a doctor at. Um, and then also, there was also a settlement with the uh, Team USA Gymnastics and the Olympic Committee. So there's already been those settlements now, but now it's the FBI's turn. Um, and it's interesting that the FBI, they pretty much admitted to not doing anything. When the FBI director uh, was quoted as saying, Christopher Ray, he was quoting as saying, uh, last year when they, you know, when they prosecuted uh, Larry Nassar a couple years ago, but I guess he made a statement at a conference and the uh, the FBI director said, he said, quote, I'm especially sorry that there were people at the FBI who had their own chance to stop this monster back in 2015 and failed. And that's inexcusable. Ray told victims that he sent, there was a Senate hearing. So even the FBI there is admitting to their failure of stopping Larry Nassar. Yeah, and even though, uh, Miguel, the FBI admitted that they failed to stop Larry Nasser, uh, the Justice Department just in May said it would actually not pursue criminal charges against those agents, who are now former agents, I guess, who were accused of actually giving inaccurate or incomplete responses during the inspector general's investigation. So these former agents flat out lied during the investigation into uh, Nasser and these uh, uh, sexual abuse allegations, they were. It appears they were fired, but the Justice Department is not going to pursue criminal charges against the agents who lied in an investigation and kept this man from being uh, brought to justice sooner. I, 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 who else do? Who else do they sue? Who else can they sue, Miguel? Exactly, Jackie. Who else can they sue? Um... And then just then, even this failure from the FBI is just a, it's also just another example of just law enforcement uh, whenever they do something. Usually when I talk about law enforcement myself, I'm talking about when they're, you know, doing, uh, they're killing black and brown people and getting away with it. And it's usually kind of, this, you know, no one here was killed, but they were sexually assaulted. Um, but like you said, they're not, they're not going to charge these FBI agents for lying and doing this on purpose, you know, not, not actually investigating and doing all this shady stuff. It's just another example of just law enforcement in general in the United States, because this is what they do. Like they cover up shootings whenever they kill black and brown people. And I guess, you know, they also cover sexual assaults, but here it's the federal, uh, you know, police, it's the FBI. Um, so it's just kind of, just another example of law enforcement in general and how they really don't care about, you know, uh, they don't care about people, about victims. 
Yeah, definitely. And, you know, switching gears uh, a, a little bit here, um, Miguel, I was looking at this piece <clears throat> recently published in ProPublica about how this uh, professional soccer team owned by a billionaire is being constructed in Chicago, even amongst a serious uh, a housing issue there in the city. And I was hoping you could tell us more about that and, you know, how this was able to, to, to carry through, how it was able to move forward. So, yeah, this story just came out um, yesterday by ProPublica, but essentially the uh, Chicago the Chicago Housing Authority promised um, residents of these uh, public housing complex called the ABLA um, in Chicago. This was and so they promised them twenty years ago that they had they had return rights to return. So they're pretty much you know we're going to demolish their homes they were living at twenty ago twenty years ago, which they did. And the plan was they were supposed to rebuild them, you know, make newer ones, better uh, housing. And then they promised the residents that they could return. But here we are 20 years later. They only built, according to this ProPublica article and this uh, investigation, they've only, throughout those 20 years, they only built like one-third of the promised uh, housing they, like, were going to build. And now they decided, the city of Chicago, Mayor Lightfoot, um, the housing authority, had decided to sell, uh, I guess, the biggest piece of land that's left. I believe it's 26 acres. And they're pretty much decided, instead of using it like they promised, to build more housing for the people that used to live there, they're selling it to a billionaire, like you said, Sean, that owns the MLS uh, Chicago Fire. And it's not for a actual stadium where they play their games, but it's a you know, a practice facility. So this is going to be a new practice facility. It's going to include six soccer fields, uh, some business offices, stuff like that. Um, So this is just another example of cities promising housing to residents, but then, you know, instead giving it to some billionaires so they can make some money. And then they, the billionaires are this, in this case, it's a sports team saying, oh, we're going to build our facility here, but we're also going to pledge to to fund some housing around this uh, land for the community. But that's usually what sports teams say, and they don't usually do that. Um, but when I found about this, found out about this story, it reminded me of uh, what happened to when the building of Dodger Stadium back in the 1950s. This is exactly what they did back then. They promised, they, they took the land, through eminent domain back then for Dodger Stadium, they promised the Chicano Mexican residents that they could return and live in these new public housing. But instead, they sold the land to the Dodgers and built Dodger Stadium, and they never got their housing. So this is, what, 60-some years later, and it's the same type of thing happening. I'm not surprised, but it's just another example of how capitalists uh, don't care about people. Yeah, particularly when we're talking about Chicago and the supposedly progressive uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot, who I guess people forgot that she used to be a cop, um, at least on the police board. She uh, promised uh, that she would improve housing, but she and the CHA uh, are really going to end up raising most of the apartment buildings citywide, displacing thousands of families. Then they claim they're going to build or rehabilitate 25 5,000 units of housing within 10 years. 
there are already 30,000 people currently on the Chicago Housing Authority's waiting list for public housing. Um, and, and, and it's just... The, the the housing commissioner said that the city needs 120,000 more affordable housing units right now. So, I mean, I, 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 of course, I see the political uh, move in this because it's beneficial for the developers and it makes money for Lori Lightfoot. But, you know, what does this say about the hatred that uh, sports teams and, and their owners have for uh, working class and poor people in these cities that they are literally uh, displacing and making homeless. Yeah, this, um, this just shows that this is the, the ugly side of sports. And like, you know, I have a podcast talking about sports and politics. The reason I call my podcast Sports as a Weapon is kind of like a it's it's a not, it's not only because it could be a positive and you could use sports as a weapon for yourself, but it's also the sports could be used as a weapon against you. And this is a perfect example of these billionaires pretty much using their weapon of sports, of being billionaires and owning a sports team and using this weapon against actual poor black and brown people um, and not even caring. They're pretending, you know, they, they do their PR. They say they're going to care about you know it's supposed to be a mixed-use project not they're not just going to build this facility they're going to build some housing but we know the history of sports teams when it comes to getting tax-free stadiums and displacing people we have a big history in this country of sports teams doing that this is the uh, another example um and yeah you're right jackie it just shows that there's this hatred this disregard that billionaires that own sports teams have for black and uh, brown people and poor people. Um, and there was a quote I saw in the article from ProPublica of a resident, and he pretty much, I'm going to paraphrase it, but he pretty much said, oh, this is just an, another example of how they do the Latino and black people. Yeah, and, you know, also, uh, Miguel, we're having this conversation coming after the uh, January 6th committee hearings and you know Washington Commander's defensive coordinator Jack Del Rio um, described January 6 as uh, simply a, a dust up at the Capitol uh, and I think he's faced some uh, a criticism of that to say the very least so what's going on here with the uh, Del Rio and I mean uh, I'm also curious if you see this as maybe more broadly reflective of his politics in general so I've said it before when I've been on this show but I'm a Raider fan and so Jack Del Rio used to be the coach of the Oakland Raiders. And um, that was before John Grunin. Um, and a few years ago, when he was still the coach, it was 2017. This was right after uh, Colin Kaepernick was, you know, kneeling. It was still the kind of the beginning within that first year where he was kneeling and other players were deciding to kneel and join in solidarity. And the Raiders had played the Washington football team, now Commanders at the time, I think it was week two, week two of the 2017 season, and have most all of the black players that were the all of the offensive linemen for the Raiders were black that were starting in the game. They all decided to kneel or put their fists in the air, black power of fist salute. But there was a controversy within the team, and it was because Jack, the it came out that Jack Del Rio was very angry and against his players protesting. And it turns out that game, the Raiders were supposed to beat Washington, but Washington pretty much. Uh, beat them, beat the Raiders hand, handedly, and it. Everyone was saying that the uh, lineman, 
weren't blocking for Derek Carr, the quarterback, as kind of like a, you know, kind of a revenge for Del Rio and maybe him and other white coaches and players not supporting them for their protest. So Jack Del Rio already has kind of this history, but since he's been the Washington Commanders uh, defensive coordinator, he's been tweeting a lot about politics, and this is just the latest example, but this one got a lot of attention, obviously. Um, so he's he's had that history of his right-wing politics. He's said other things, but what he said in this tweet, he said, quote, this is his tweet that he did on uh, June 6, 2022. He said, would you would, would love to understand the whole story about why the summer of riots, looting, burning, and the destruction of personal property is never discussed, but this is. So he's pretty much like angry at why there's an investigation on January 6th, but not when people were out in the streets protesting George Floyd getting murdered by police. So his tweet just shows um, pretty much his white supremacy that he believes in. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Miguel, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're moving to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Friday, June 4th, 2022. And, of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary here in Washington, D.C. You can call Call us at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at SputnikNews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also listen to us on Sputnik.Mave. That's M-A-V-E dot digital. And you can listen to us live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. And we're very happy to be joined for the hour today by Dr. Marshall Coleman Adebayo, president of the Bethesda African Cemetery Coalition. Dr. Coleman Adebayo, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. 
Absolutely. And doctor, I know that uh, you all have some exciting things uh, coming up in terms of uh, advancing and really amplifying uh, the struggle around uh, the cemetery there, uh, an issue that we uh, speak about with you here on the show from time to time, trying to save this um, historic cemetery uh, with enslaved folks buried in it from, you know, the, the clutches of real estate developers and private capital. And one thing that I know you all have coming up uh, is an art exhibit, actually, that you will be uh, uh, sort of installing uh, there. And so I was hoping you could describe, you know, what's happening uh, with this uh, exhibit piece and what it is you all intend to show here. Yeah, no, thank you for the opportunity to, to talk to the community about this. Um, there, are, there are a lot of things going on with, with the Bethesda African Cemetery Coalition. I did want to mention one thing before we get to the art exhibit, and that is today, which is Friday at about 3, 3.30. Um, high school students are going to be marching out of the schools into Fort and going marching to Fort Reno today, uh, demanding um, that uh, demanding the right to know their history, um, demanding the right to have a, a history that's based based in truth, um, and and not just uh, uh, imperial lies about um, about white just and not just a, a history that is shrouded in white supremacy. So so if you're around Fort Reno today, around three three thirty. Um, please come out and join us and join our youth um, as they demand um, to know um, their history and to, and to demand that um, Montgomery County stop placing the priorities of capital developers over their right to know their history uh, and that politicians need to start getting out the way. Uh, who are not prepared to fight for the black community. So we're going to have a demonstration today uh, at 3 o'clock, Fort Reno in Washington, D.C. Um, high school students from all over the region are going to come out, and they're going to voice um, their opinion about this issue. So I, I'm totally excited um, about the fact that our youth are now taking a leadership role in the fight um, uh, to destroy the myth of white supremacy. And so to me, that's, that's extremely important. Um, and then the next day, which is tomorrow, uh, from six to nine, we'll have the opening at the American University, uh, of an exhibit, um, uh, which is called, uh, The Bridge That Brought Us Over. And it's, it's taken from a quote. I'm sorry, The Bridge That Carried Us Over. It's taken from a quote from, Fannie Lou Hamer, if you don't mind, it's a very uh, short quote, but I would like just to give your uh, audience a sense of the spirit of this, of this museum, of this exhibit. Uh, and, and Fannie Lou Hamer writes, there are things I feel strong about. One is not to forget where I come from, and the other is to praise the bridge that carried us over. And so we decided to call this exhibit the bridge that carried us over. Because if you forget about the bridge, the people, the institutions, the memory that brought you over, you are doomed to repeat uh, the failures um, and not understand um, the strategies that help you survive white supremacy and racism. And so this exhibit is about not only uh, examining the empirical issues that, have, that confronted Africans 
uh, in Montgomery County and specifically Bethesda, but also the resistance that that kind of oppression met uh, from 1619 to 2022. We are still resisting that kind of oppression. And so you see this lexicon cord throughout history that the white supremacists and the capitalists, you know, they impose these draconian measures on the black community. And then you see the resistance of the community to that kind of oppression. And so, yeah, we can call it an art exhibit. I don't think it really is. It, I mean, we do have some beautiful art pieces in this exhibit. Um, for example, one, we have two pieces in there by um, a young black woman uh, who was 15 years old at the time when she became involved in in the uh, Moses movement. And she has two beautiful oil and acrylic paintings. Uh, one is about the rape of young black girls on River Road in Bethesda and, and what that looked like through the eyes of a 15-year-old. It's a beautiful, moving, moving painting. There's another painting that her name is uh, Just Love Allaby. Uh, she's now 17 years old. Um, and there's another painting that she did that that's simply called The March. And it's about the human trafficking of young black girls from Bethesda, Maryland to the Deep South. Again, a very moving portrayal of the history of, of this area. Her name is Jeff Love Allaby. So you should definitely come in to see Just Love's paintings. There's another painting um, by Mona um, Alabiyami, uh, who is from Egypt. And it's her interpretation from an Egyptian, from an African woman's perspective of what happened on River Road. And it's, and it's just simply entitled Innocence. Again, about the young black girls on River Road whose bodies were torn apart through the sex uh, trade on River Road in Bethesda. So those are some of the some of the major um, paintings that are part of this exhibit. Then we have artifacts that are equally as important in this exhibit. Um, as you know, Montgomery County, under the leadership of Mark Elridge, gave permission uh, to the planning board to allow the developer to go into the cemetery. And I think now we can definitively call it a cemetery uh, because now we actually have proof that the county knew that this was a cemetery um, years and years and years ago and still gave permission uh, for developers to go in and literally clean out the cemetery with their tractors and all of their equipment knowing that the bodies of these little girls that I've just spoken to you about were buried in this very area. And and they literally they brought in about 40 to 50 dump trucks, and they loaded the remains of these little girls and our ancestors in the back of dump trucks, and they took them to um, a, la a private landfill in Germantown where they dumped um, all the remains in a landfill. Um, and after they had been dumped, they brought in a steam truck and a crusher truck uh, to make sure they could destroy all criminal evidence of, of their dastardly deeds. Um, BACC activists followed those trucks to the landfill, and we took Facebook, um, uh, we did a Facebook Live 
of the dumping of our ancestors in the landfill, that video for the first time will be shown in this museum. So you will actually see BACC activists going through um, the uh, the remains, really, of our ancestors trying to pull out bones, trying to pull out any funerary objects, because the county, again, under Mark Elridge, had said that there were no uh, remains, that, that there were no... Um, um, that this was not a cemetery, and therefore there was nothing there. And so for four months, they had contract archaeologists uh, supposedly uh, uh, performing due diligence in the cemetery, paid for, however, by the developer, who said they didn't find anything, that there was no evidence of a cemetery or the first settlement of Africans in Montgomery County took place right here on River Road. They found no evidence of that community existing in in the in in uh, in the materials that were sent to the landfill. But within thirty minutes, we pulled out thirty artifacts. Thirty minutes, we pulled out thirty artifacts. They had four months; they didn't find one artifact. That tells you they weren't looking for artifacts. Um, and so, for the first time, people are going to be able to see that video of us going through what they dumped in a landfill until, of course, uh, we were threatened with violence um, in terms of being removed from the landfill. So this is, this is in many ways, a revolutionary exhibit. Uh, definitely it has features of art, but it is revolutionary. Uh, we also, uh, for the first time, are going to have, and a lot of people, I hadn't done this before, we're actually going to have the chains and shackles that they use to, to, to chain and to shackle little children. Uh, because remember, what they called slavery in this country was a war against Africa's children. It was a war against Africa's children. That's what slavery was in this country. So the, the life expectancy of an African under these conditions was 20 years. So by the time you were 10 years old, you had already lived half of your lifetime. So, so, so the, the blacksmiths had to make very tiny shackles. You are going to see the shackles that they used on children in this exhibit. You're also going to see a replica of a white dress that's called a chemise that African children, well, but they were all children, but the African girls wore during this period of history. And it was created by the same designer who made the designs for the Harriet movie that's shown at the National Park Service Museum. So you're going to see the chemise. And by the way, they never gave these children underwear. It was only the outer garment. So even in the roughest winter in Virginia and Washington and Maryland, they didn't have underwear. They only had that white outer garment. You're going to see that garment in this in this exhibit. Um, you're also going to see um, a torture tool that was used, we think, primarily against young girls who were refusing to submit uh, to sexual advances to, to any white man that chose to to destroy their bodies. Um, and you will see that instrument there. It's about a 60-pound weight that they forced them to put on top of their heads. And then they would clamp this weight around their ankles 
and you will be able to touch these chains. You will be able to really get a feel for what these little girls had to endure. Um, the goal of this particular torture instrument was to break the neck and the spine of these little girls, but to do it in such a way that the entire community would hear them crying out in pain. Um, with the other hand that wasn't holding the weight on top of the head, she was still expected to harvest tobacco. So this was a public execution of a child in a tobacco field or a cotton field. You will be able to see that at this museum. Uh, and we're asking for people who come to the, this museum, particularly with this particular object. We call this area of the museum the meditation and commitment area of the commitment of the museum. We're asking people just to stand there for a second with their hands on the shackles and just to say a prayer for all the African children who were tortured, doing what Europeans like to call slavery. Uh, we call it European barbarism because that's what it was. We don't call what they were on plantations. We call them death camp because those children went to those areas to die. It was a plantation for the settlers, yes, because they were planting so they could make money, but for the Africans. They went there to die. So we call them death camps because that's what they were. So this exhibit is going to open a lot of eyes. Hopefully people are going to come there, spend hours in the museum, go to every single wall, understand exactly what happened on River Road, which was a holocaust. It was a genocide. And that's what Montgomery County officials like Mark Elrich is refusing to talk to the people about. We're going to show all of this. All of this history is going to be on view at the Wash at the American University starting tomorrow, April. I'm mean, sorry, uh, June 11th. The opening is from six to nine years, uh, six to nine p.m. But the exhibit will run from tomorrow until August 7th. So if you're not able to get there tomorrow, you know, you can still come to the exhibit until August 7th. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I love <clears throat> this, uh, the, the name that you all chose for this, uh, the bridge that carried us over. I mean, it reminds me of uh, that old song, How I Got Over. My soul looks back and wonder how I got over. And just connecting that 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 deep history with uh, a current struggle. I mean, it reminds me of what, you know, Dr. John Henry Clark would say a lot, that uh, uh, history is a current event. And that when we talk about the enslavement period, we're not talking about something that happened a uh, hundred million years ago or something that's so far removed that it no longer impacts us, there's a direct connection to the experience of the folks in that cemetery and what we're experiencing here in the United States in the 21st century. But we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, 
social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines now open 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by Dr. Marsha Coleman at a bio. And uh, Dr. Coleman, we were just talking about uh, uh, an upcoming museum exhibit that the uh, Bethesda African Cemetery Coalition will be having at uh, American University around the, the history and sort of giving the real uh, 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 issue and substance and context of what's happening there. But uh, we're also coming up on, on Juneteenth as well, uh, that of course, uh, is now a federal holiday. And uh, I know that you all will be having uh, some events around that as well, as I think a lot of people will. And I was wondering how you connect sort of the the history of a Juneteenth to uh, the struggle of the, the Bethesda uh, African Cemetery and uh, how you see that as part and parcel of this struggle. Yeah, I think the word is resistance. Um, we are resisting uh, the oppression of the power structure here in Montgomery County. We're resisting the white supremacy. We're resisting the fact that our, our young men are being murdered in the streets of Montgomery County and that a single police officer has ever been charged with a crime here uh, of killing a black man. I mean, of, of killing a, a, uh, an innocent black man here. Um, it's, it's, it's the issue of resistance. That is, that is, that is a lexicon cord that connects almost every um, uh, segment of our history to each other is the issue of resistance. And one of the things that you're going to hear um, that, that, you know, we want to bring people back to the cemetery. And so, so, so on June, on June 19th, we're going to gather at Macedonia Baptist Church, um, at, I believe, 1.30 or 2 o'clock, which is, which, you know, interestingly enough, Macedonia, that whole area should be considered a historic district, right? So where Macedonia Baptist Church is located is what was called the slave quarters. Um, for these uh, death camps. And we don't call our ancestors slaves, by the way. Again, we have a different language at BACC because we understand that, th that the language that we use has been weaponized against us. And we're actually using the language of our oppressors. And so we are trying very hard to decolonize our language. So we call our ancestors warriors because everything they did was with a mind set on freedom. It was with a mindset on freedom. That's that's not a slave mentality. That's a warrior mentality. I mean, if I can just back up with the museum, for example. For example, I talked about the chemise or the little dress that the little African girls were forced to wear. Uh, and they often wore um, head coverings. A lot of people thought they wore head coverings. Um, because of the dust or because they were in the field. But in many instances, the reason why these children wore hair coverings is because the way their hair was plaited was in the form of a map. And so when they would take their hair coverings off, it would give people who were, who were escaping the barbarism a map of how to get to freedom. Everything they did was with their minds set on freedom. These were warriors. Our enemies have decided to call them slaves. That's fine for our enemies. But we need to think differently than our enemies about who our relatives are. So a part of the movement, of the Moses movement, is not just simply uh, to, to take back the land. It's also a different way of thinking about who our relatives were. They were freedom fighters. They were warriors. 
and it is such a disservice to call them slaves. Now, did we have traitors? Absolutely. Every single group that's ever fought for freedom, you know, have, 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 have traitors within their ranks. That's not, that's just a fact of life. But the majority of our people were fighting for freedom. They were freedom fighters. They were warriors. And so we celebrate that warrior spirit. We celebrate the women who braided their hair like maps to make sure that the next generation could, could flee to freedom and get out of the barbarism, the white supremacy of the of various areas of this country. So, um, so, so, so it is in that spirit that we celebrate Juneteenth because it is about resistance. It's about African people making decisions that, again, their mind was set on freedom. You know, when, when after President um, Abraham Lincoln made the political decision, it was a wise decision to turn a very large population of Africans um, to give them an additional reason if they needed one to fight, which is that, you know, if you can get to the North, Remember, the Emancipation Proclamation did not free people who were in the South, in the Deep South. It freed people who were already in. The, if you can get to, if you can get to Union territory, you know we will, we will now declare that you're free. And after emancipation, he wrote a letter to Harriet Tubman, and he asked warrior, not slave, warrior Harriet Tubman. Will you come to Washington? Because remember, there were all these posters all over the country that had a picture of Abraham Lincoln, and underneath the picture would say liberator, or it would say emancipator, or whatever. And so he was very invested in this image that he was creating, that he was the one who had liberated, emancipated black people. And so he needed Harriet Tubman to come to Washington, D.C., and basically give him the seal of approval that he was the one who liberated black people. And Harriet Tubman basically sent a note back saying, no, I'm not coming to Washington, D.C. to give you a photo op because you did not liberate us. We liberated ourselves. Now, that kind of history is not taught in our schools. That's the reason why these children, these young people today, are marching out of their schools today to say, we want this kind of history. We want the truth. We want the truth about what happened to our people so that we can understand how we chart a future for ourselves, how we can create a strategy for liberation based on truth and not myth. So... So we're going to be celebrating the 19th of June. Uh, we'll start at Macedonia Baptist Church around 1.30. We'd like for everyone to come. It's going to be a, a wonderful day of truth-telling and music and dancing. And we're going to march from Macedonia to, the, uh, to Moses Cemetery, which is basically across the street from Macedonia Baptist Church. Um, and we will... We will occupy that land. We will occupy the land of our ancestors. We're going to take over that area. And Dr. Coleman uh, Adebayo, I'm glad that you mentioned the students again, because as you were talking about the way the little girl's hair was braided in the pattern of a map 
to give yeah. those uh, uh, who are escaping a, a route to freedom. I feel like in a way that's exactly what these students are doing today uh, in, in taking up their own struggle for learning their own history. And they're giving us our own uh, 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 route to how we struggle for ourselves and our ancestors. And I wonder if you think the ability of the uh, uh, commission to connect our history to a a tangible, uh, identifiable location, place that people can go to and there are artifacts they can feel and people can say, this happened right down the street from where I go to school. Do you think that helped uh, make this more real for those students and, and in a way uh, gave them also a roadmap for them to chart their path for the struggle that they're now undertaking? Yeah, that, that is that is our wildest dream that you just enunciated. That is our dream. That's the reason why we've put in 10, 12, 13 hours a day working on this museum. And I should mention that we also wrote a 150-page book um, about this struggle. It is right now the definitive work on the struggle um, uh, around the Holocaust, um, the, you know, the genocide that occurred on, on, on River Road. Um, so, so yeah, so we, we want people to come to the museum. We want you to get a copy of our book at the museum. You can get a copy of the book either at the museum or through BACC. Um, it's just important. We have articles in the book written by youth um, talking about or discussing the importance of youth, understanding, rooting current-day struggle in the understanding of history. Um, and I think these are some really important articles. We have articles in the book um, that deal with, you know, uh, obviously the human sex trafficking. And we have articles in the book about the desecration. Most people don't know that about five minutes away from Moses Cemetery across from Whole Foods is a, a two plantation homes. You know, what, what, you know, torture chambers, really, where Africans were held in these, in these, in these, in these dwellings. And these dwellings are still fully, um, uh, you know, fully established. I mean, you can still go in there. The walls are, you know, are, 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 are iron, um, uh, iron lined so that people cannot escape. You still have the smoke houses there where they would, on one level, um, smoke meats in order to get through the winters, but at the same time, if Africans were trying to escape to freedom, they would they would cremate them in these smokehouses. They're still fully intact, five minutes away from the cemetery. What's interesting about that? Two things: one is that Montgomery County often sends their students to Alabama and Mississippi to take tours of plantation homes, but will not tell their students that five minutes away from your house is the exact same plantation that we're going to send you to Mass to, to uh, Alabama or Mississippi to see, because they don't want people to understand that right under their own feet is the blood of black people, that black people have a right to this land because our blood is saturated in the land of one of the wealthiest communities in the world, which is Bethesda, Maryland. So, 
so that that's one of the things. And then second of all, I think there's there's also important for students to understand the resistance. And I keep coming back to this issue of resistance because even in such dire situations, black women, black men, black boys, black girls, they resisted with everything they had. Like in my family, I know that I come from a group of women who were called, you know, glass grinders. Um, and I talk about this in my book called No Fear, Whistleblower's Triumph Over Corruption and Retaliation at the EPA, that my great-great-grandmother was, a, was, a, was, a, was a, a glass grinder. In other words, instead of sleeping at night, she was, you know, she was in the big house, so she was a victim of rape and abuse. And so in the evenings, instead of sleeping, she was actually grinding glass, and she was substituting the salt. She was substituting the glass for salt. That was her. That, that was the kind of struggle she was engaged in. So, so in every single aspect of our lives, we fought back. And so when people tell you, for example, in the Juneteenth stories, that, you know, the Africans didn't know that they were free, and it took the Union soldiers now, you, now, most black people just know that that's ridiculous. I mean, just on the face of it, they know that that doesn't sound right, right? That it took Union soldiers to go to Gaveston and tell black people, oh, guess what? You guys are free. And that we didn't have our own networks of people moving through these death camps and, and through the drums and through the ways that we communicated to say, that you know that there was there was freedom on the way. I mean, I think most black people would understand that that just doesn't sound right to them. So we even have to begin to rewrite the story of Juneteenth so that we understand how we resisted and and also the counter moves by our oppressors, our enemies. And we do need to start talking about enemies and stop talking about everybody as our friends against our enemies and how they were determined to keep us in, you know, to keep us in bondage. And we made the decision that we were going to be free. So even in terms of the Juneteenth story, so if you come to, um, to our Juneteenth celebration, you're going to hear the truth about what happened um, on that day. And it's going, so we have historian C.R. Gibbs, who is going to talk about, who is going to uh, talk about the truth of what happened on that day and how our people knew what was happening in other parts of the country. But the oppression in Texas was such that they needed, you know, that they, that that day formed a very important and instrumental day in their lives. But they weren't ignorant about what was happening throughout the country. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, um, throughout our conversation so far today, uh, Doctor, we've been um, really hitting hard on the idea of resistance, both uh, historically and in the contemporary sense, and how our history, in a way, is like a kind of fuel and a reminder, something that helps us remember the importance of struggle. And so when we take a look around at the United States today, a, a country that is in crisis, a capitalist system that is in crisis, an imperialist uh, global system that is in crisis, which, of course, is all uh, undergirded and intertwined 
intertwined with uh, white supremacy as well. I mean, how do you sort of see uh, uh, the Juneteenth sort of um, uh, uh, a legacy of resistance sort of having relevance for, for what we're seeing today? Do you think it's another place for us to, uh, first of all, I think it is a time of reflection. And oftentimes we are so busy, you know, just, you know, moving throughout our lives or just trying to survive that we don't have the time to just stop and think about our history. And, and, and as, as, and so Juneteenth provides that day. It provides an important day for everything to just stop and and just think about the history of Black people, not only in this well, in particularly in this country, because Juneteenth is is is, is a, a holiday that focuses on what happened in in this country. Um, but you know, as we as we get you know the rise of these fascist forces the you know the the replace you know we won't be replaced forces and 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 the violence um that we saw in Texas a couple of weeks ago you know these people who are just going about their lives and then have these white supremacists you know murder them um i do think juneteenth serves that purpose for people just to think about, you know, how we move forward. And I think, you know, and how we do it in a, in a way that serves our interest. Because, you know, generally we've been so focused on sort of bridge building, which I think is very important, and ally building, which I think is very important. But, there's, but there are a lot of bridges that we need to build within our own community. And I think that that's an opportunity for black people to just look inward for a day and say, how do we begin to, to build bridges within our own community among ourselves? And and so I think it's like a, I think it's a super important holiday. And in terms of the Bethesda African Cemetery Coalition, I mean, we're actually pointing to a particular project that we that we that we are determined to stop, and that is the continued desecration of the cemetery. But that's not the only thing we want. We are also fighting for them to transfer the land to a black institution. Uh, and that is what's really <laughs> stuck in the crow of of the of the establishment here in Montgomery County. It's not that we just simply want the desecration to stop, which we do. What's what really bothers the politicals here in Montgomery County is that the black people here have the audacity to say, transfer the land. We want the land. And we're very clear about that. The land that these um, white politicians and black politicians are refusing to transfer that we owned in this in this area that we own. We're not asking for them to transfer the land that belonged to other people. We're asking them to transfer the land back that belonged to the black community. And these people are resisting it. Because now that land is worth multi-million dollars. It's worth a lot of money. And they cannot conceive of black people having that kind of wealth and the ability and the power that comes along we're controlling that kind of wealth. And so they're fighting us every single day because 
For them, this is the finger that's in the dam. If you remove that finger, which is what Juneteenth is about, if you remove that finger, will the whole, will the whole institution of white supremacy fall down? That's what they're concerned about. As long as they've got the finger in the dam and they're saying, you know, we're holding these black people in place. There's no place for them to go. They don't have any money. They don't have any power. They don't have land. Then we've got them locked into shackles. But if we move the finger out of the dam, will the whole thing fall down? And one politician actually told someone, I'm concerned that if these black people get the land, that other black people will think that they can also fight for land. That's what's really at stake here, is political power, the power to determine our own destiny, self-determination. And that's the real, that's the real power of the Moses movement, is that we are fighting for self-determination. And we understand that because we understand our history. We understand our history. So we're on solid ground. And that's the reason why we are such, I think, for, for the white politicians in Montgomery County, they can see us. They see us as a very dangerous political force because we're grounded. We're not grounded in the 21st century. We're grounded in all of our history. And our history does not start in the United States. Our history starts in Africa. Definitely. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 0252-11320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Dr. Marsha Coleman Adebayo is here. And doctor, you know, June is also a black music appreciation month. And one thing that I know about the uh, uh, Bethesda African Cemetery Coalition is that you all are very intentional about including the uh, uh, cultural aspect of things when you have, uh, uh, you know, different events and demonstrations. Certainly, I think that the uh, 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 museum exhibit that we spoke to earlier is a part of that as well. And I feel like there's a connection to that in between um, uh, when you talk about our historical memory and how it, it, it goes beyond these last 400, 500 years, and that, you know, we are a people with a uh, deep and really ancient history and uh, culture. And so I'm wondering, why is that aspect of things important for you all to include within a, a political struggle? Yeah, Amilcar Cabral, the, the, uh, the, um, the, the revolutionary from Guinea, said that um, culture is the flower of revolution. It's the flower of revolution. Within our culture, it's the seed of revolution. It's the seed of revolt. It's the seed of resistance. And so, um, so we have been very intentional about the issue of culture. It is not 
a side issue for us. It's not a peripheral issue for us. It is at the center of our struggle. The song, breathing together, coming together, understanding the words of the songs, understanding how the songs communicate the struggle of black people, the drum beat, the tambourines. Um, and because of our, because we're so intentional about culture, we've been able to attract all of these fabulous, fabulous, fabulous artists who have created almost a whole genre now of revolutionary songs, of liberation songs around this struggle. Um, if you come to the opening tomorrow night, um, again, June 11th, starting at 6, uh, ending at 9 at the American University at the Captain Art Center. Uh, and I should just say that the exhibit will last until August 7th. But if you come at the, to the opening, um, you're going to, again, sense how important um, culture is to the Bethesda African Cemetery Coalition. It, it is the bedrock in many ways of how we reach people. And so uh, Sister Lucy Murphy will be singing. Uh, Dr. Karen Wilson, Ama Achifu, who has written the most extraordinary songs, um, will be singing. Um, in fact, she wrote the song, This is a Scene of a Crime, uh, which, which we will be singing um, tomorrow night. Um, she's written all kinds of just incredible songs about Moses. Um, when when John Lewis, Congressman Lewis, died, she wrote a song called uh, Making Good Trouble. We're going to make good trouble today. And we sing that in front of the cemetery because, in fact, we make good trouble. Um, the the BACC asked her to compose a song from the words of Harriet Tubman um, about, you know, we keep, we, we keep moving. We keep, when the dogs bark, you know, we keep moving. When the police come, we keep moving. And so now she's going to, she's going to sing for the first time. Um, you're going to hear that song that was commissioned by BACC at the opening of the exhibit. Um, we're going to have the singer that a lot of people in D.C. know, Freedom. She's going to be singing. Um, we're going to have spoken word tomorrow. Um, it's going to be a lot of tributes through the arts in this space that I think people really don't want to miss because I am so convinced, and we are all convinced, I think, in BACC, that our ancestors are such a part of this struggle, that in many ways they're the guiding force of this struggle. Western society believes that when you're dead, you're dead. You're just a, you're just a donut or something. But within African religions and the way we see the world, our ancestors go to a different place, a different space, but they're always with us. And they're using their heaven to assist us and to help us and to love us. And in that spirit, we believe that our ancestors are always with us and they're guiding us. And we've seen their fingerprints on so many things that we, if you look at the composition of BACC, everyone in this organization is a leader and provide and, 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 and creates a space 
within the organization to provide leadership. So it is such a rich organization of so many voices, nationalities, intergenerational. But everybody has a space there that they provide leadership. So we have the Artist Collective, which has just been such an incredible blessing. And I believe the Black Workers Collective will also be there singing tomorrow night as well. And if there are other artists in D.C. who want to come and share your talent with us, you know, we are so happy to have other artists step forward with their guitars or flutes or whatever and join us or even just carve out a space where you share with us what's in your soul. So we're open to that as well tomorrow night. Uh, and we've had that happen on a number of occasions where people know that we're going to be in a space and they bring their guitar, they bring their flute or whatever, and they and they join in in, in terms of um, the art the artistry that they bring to the struggle. So yeah, for us, you know, we are we are we're solidly hooked into the Milcar Cabral uh, concept of culture that it is an integral, organic part of struggle, and that without culture. Um, the struggle is, is, is at a deficit. So we're very strong on that point. Yeah. And, you know, as we continue on in this struggle to recognize and honor our ancestors and to reclaim the land, you know, there are ongoing issues that we have to bring this energy uh, and this spirit into, uh, particularly with the issue of ongoing racist police terrorism, because, you know, we have the January 6th televised commission that uh, the first uh, televised hearing was aired last night, and that was quite revealing, but there are still the issues of uh, police killing unarmed black people uh, and not being held accountable for it. But this time, Dr. Coleman Adebayo, the uh, cop who shot Patrick Loyoya in the back of the head uh, in Michigan has been charged with second degree murder. Now, every time this happens, the few times that it does happen, that one of these cops is indicted and charged for uh, the crime of terror taking the life of one of our people, we we are cautiously optimistic. And I'm not even sure that optimistic is actually what we what we're feeling. We are cautious in watching to see how this system will find a way to either exonerate this person or, you know, not uh, punish the person uh, as as they would have punished them if it were one of us. So what are your thoughts on the fact that this officer was uh, indeed uh, charged with second degree murder, which is very unusual? And you know what this means, do you think this is a turning point in uh, the struggle, the ongoing struggle against racist police terrorism? Uh, I think the short answer is no. <laughs> I think, you know, to a large extent, um, you know, we every once in a while we get these very high-profile cases, and I guess it's natural for us to take comfort in these singular events. But for every highly, um, highly publicized police killing, there are hundreds that we don't know about. For example, you know, all of the murders that have occurred in Montgomery County, I mean, Ogatuga, Emmanuel Ogatuga, Kwamina, you don't even know these names. These were little, these were young black men right here in our own community who were gunned down the back of their heads, shot. Uh, and we don't even know their names. So I think these highly publicized events 
are now sort of the cost of doing business. You know, every business has sort of like, you know, a 10, 20% miscellaneous expenses where you just assume that you're going to have to spend 10, 20% on something that you, that you could, couldn't count on when you first created your budget. And so I think that now most, I think the powers that be realize that in order to satisfy um, uh, particularly the black community to feel like the police are doing something that some people are being held accountable that every once in a blue moon, a policeman is, 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 is brought to account and the county or whatever the state has to cough up, you know, $10 million or $20 million in a civil suit. I think that has become the cost of doing business, but to give up the right to kill black people, that's a fundamental right that the state has still refused to relinquish. And they're not going to relinquish it until black people force them to do that. So, you know, so I, I'd love to say yes to your question. I think this is a turning point, but I don't really think it is. I think the system has figured out that if they can have a couple of high profile cases, pay the families twenty, thirty million dollars, then they can go on with business as usual, which is killing black people in the street. And then, you know, just assume that every year they're going to have to cough up two or three, you know, they're, they're going to have to deal with two or three high profile murders. But in the meantime, they get away with hundreds of black men and black women who are murdered and no one will ever know their names. Yeah, and what you're saying, Doctor, makes me think about um, how Derek Chauvin, uh, uh, the racist cop that killed uh, uh, George Floyd, <clears throat> was ultimately charged pretty clearly simply as a result of just the massive uprising in the streets that were happening. And I tend to agree on the one hand that um, uh, uh, these sorts of things are, are a part of the process of this system protecting itself and its ability to kill with impunity. But also, I think it shows, you know, the value of uh, an organized militant struggle. The fact that the state even felt the need to respond in that way after trying to crush uh, uh, the George Floyd protest militarily uh, in the streets and failing uh, uh, to do so. And, you know, I feel like when we discuss resistance, like we've been doing uh, this hour, I don't think we can really talk about that if we're not talking about um, being organized, being an organization and being in movement, because, you know, every every slave rebellion was 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 an organized effort. You know what I mean? And so when we talk about the the, the motive force of history, even if we look at the abolition of slavery and the, the decisive difference that, you know, organized black people made when they uh, uh, directly intervened into the Civil War, thus giving it a revolutionary character, another organized effort. You know what I mean? And so for me, that is really sort of the major takeaway when we talk about what history can tell us what uh, about today, what these last several centuries have proven is uh, a sort of the real, the thing that will really, really affect change. And, you know, it, it seems like the answer is always the same, doctor. The answer is, seems to always be organize, organize, organize. And in a movement such as this in the United States, where social decay ha has taken such a hold, I think that's going to be uh, crucially important to remember. Well, you know, I think what we also have to learn is that the system mutates and that it has an incredible ability to mutate from one epic to another epic. That's true. And and and, and that's one of, I think one of the one of the issues that I you know, I think that we should 
you know, when we think about Marxian theory, for example, I, I'm not sure that Marx understood just the incredible ability of the system to mutate from one epic to another. Maybe he did, but but I but I it, I think it's not just a question of organizing; it's staying organized, and then creating political movements that are sustained. And that's been a problem. Like, you know, I was a member of the Black Panther Party and in Detroit, Michigan. And and we were organized and we were disciplined and we were young. I mean, most of the average age of a Black Panther Party member was probably 14 or 15 years old. People don't realize that, but that's the case. And we were organized. Um, and then the state came in and basically wiped us out. Um, and as a result of that, you, you know, you get, you know, this rise of black Democrats and other people because the state begins to mutate. And I said, well, you don't have to look to left movements like this because we can settle your grievances through the democratic process. Right. And so, so the, so the real challenge is not just to organize, but to stay organized and then, and, and then to create the institutions that will carry on the legacy from one generation to another generation. And that's been difficult because of the power of the system. But that is, in fact, where I agree with you that that is, in fact, where our history can be so valuable. Because during this long period that we call European barbarism and the United, or Euro American barbarism, in the United States, Africans had to stay organized intergenerationally, not just not just inter, but 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 in terms of from one generation to the next, they had to pass on the the knowledge of how to survive this system. And what this system has been pretty adapted doing is is providing other options for Africans outside of just. Um, the struggle itself, like a democratic party, right? So, no, I agree with you. Organize, 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 but also stay organized and institutionalize that organization so that, you know, when we have these huge tragedies like what happened with the Black Panther Party, we don't sort of fall into disarray for a generation or two and then try to reorganize ourselves, which is what's happening now, I think. Remember, from the end of the Black Panther period or the civil rights period, there was almost a whole generation that, you know, um, did not experience the, the level of struggle that 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 I experienced coming up in the, you know in the in the in the 70s and 80s, um, and so so then you get these massive police shootings, and then we begin to reorganize again, and, and 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 then I think another problem that we've had is that we haven't had the kind of intergenerational conversations that we need of bringing young people together with 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 the older generation to share this information from generation to generation. Yeah, I definitely think that's the case and why I think it's so great that you all are so intentional about bringing the young people in. Well, we want to thank you so much, Dr. Coleman Adebayo, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there for today and this week here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be back with an all-new slate of episodes. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.